News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here with Professor Christina Greer and Jill of all trades, Alex Brooklyn. There's lots to cover in another wild week around the city. But first, there's some news about us. After more than four years and 200 episodes, come July, FAQ NYC will become part of The City. That's thecity.nyc, the nonprofit newsroom covering New York and whose reporters, including Greg Smith, Josefa Velasquez, Rachel Holliday-Smith, Jose Martinez, Ruben Blau, and of course, Katie Honan, have been part of this show's soundscape since Jump. And that soundscape, and all of us, uh, will continue to be here each week, now that the pod has what should be its forever home, up the city. And, by the way, I'll also be working as a senior editor there. Also, Alex Brooklyn, who's been our executive producer since day one, putting together complex candidate debates and forums, incredible in-person art installations, elegies and updates for New York City, and so much more, is shifting out of that executive producer role as she's spending more time abroad, although you'll still be hearing her voice and hopefully baby Walter in the background as she continues as an occasional host and contributor. Alex, uh, fill listeners in on uh, what you're going to be doing. I don't have anything major to announce yet, but I might soon. Um, But for FAQ, I'll still be doing a dispatch about, you know, city nerd stuff, just like with international cities, pigeons, policies, and uh, uh, infrastructure. So it should be pretty fun. And I think the, uh, the occasional dispatch will be good for New Yorkers to see how maybe things tick in other cities. I know that's what drew me to be interested. Cities never stop being interesting. Not to a native New Yorker. <laughs> Indeed. Um, look, big week in Albany. Uh, the deadline for Andrew Cuomo to uh, run is pretty much passed. He would have had to submit his uh, petitions on Tuesday. Uh, conceivably, he could still mail them on Thursday, but his people say that that's not the case. I did not see any quo no headlines today. Very disappointed. And the session in Albany is coming to an end. It looks like there's not going to be any deal to renew or revise 421A, uh, the program that gives developers tax breaks big tax breaks in exchange for building uh, affordable subsidized units. Um, so with, without that, it's an interesting question, how many of those units are going to get built? And uh, right now, the legislature is just offering Eric Adams two years of mayoral control with a bunch more limitations on it, which reminds you how often Albany ends up as something of a uh, extortion racket where it creates rights for New York, but then those rights expire and the mayor has to come back and plead for them. So in Adam's case, uh, second black mayor, uh, his school's chancellor, Phil Banks. Oh, my goodness. His school's chancellor, David Banks, excuse me. uh, (laughs) It's also black. They're both uh, products of New York City's public schools, and they're being put on a very uh, short rope uh, by, by these often union aligned 
uh, lawmakers in Albany so that before Adams runs for reelection, he'd have to come back and uh, and make his case again. Uh, we saw the same thing with speed cameras, where Albany is now kindly letting the city use its cameras 24 hours a day. Previously, they shut off at night, which is when most of the actual speeding was happening. Uh, but we still can only have so many, and we have them only so long as uh, Albany deems to allow that, which is pretty weird. Um, over in the city, my God, everyone in the world is running in the 10th Congressional District. Uh, so in addition to, among others, Bill de Blasio, Mondaire Jones, uh, Yulian Niam, and uh, even Liz Holtzman, uh, we have now have two new candidates who have entered the fray, um, Carolina Rivera, uh, the council member uh, who ran for speaker, and Dan Goldman, who was the uh, impeachment attorney, second time around for Donald Trump. That's going to be William wide open. Conversely, Chrissy, I know you've been interested in the 12th, where you have two very old Democrats uh, who are now stuck in the same district uh, and about to go head to head. At least one young guy, uh, Patel, who ran against Maloney twice already and came close and is hoping to break through. But this is much, much harder now. What are you seeing? How is all this shaken up in this very weird year? Yeah, well, Harry, before I get to the 12th, I, I just want to throw in something about the 10th really quickly and Dan Goldman, because when I saw that he jumped in, keep in mind, many people in New York might know Dan Goldman, not necessarily from the Trump impeachment stuff, but from all of his time on MSNBC. So I'm curious if he'll talk to Maya Wiley and try and think of maybe a winning strategy of how do you use all that national money? Now, mind you, he's a Goldman, as in like, the Goldman Goldmans, <laughs> old school Goldman. Um, so I don't know how much of his own money he's going to put in, but I think he has got a much more solidified national presence. And we'll see how how and if that can translate to a very crowded 10th uh, congressional primary on August 23rd. Listeners, don't forget, uh, June 28th is for governor and lieutenant governor and assembly. And August 23rd is for uh, state senate and congress. So I think him being in the race does shake things up because I don't know if he necessarily has New York City name recognition, but I think he will bring a bucket of money. Um, and that changes the calculus, obviously. And then Carolina Rivera has, I think, a foundation in the city. Um, and we'll see if her if her name recognition can kind of trump some of this money that will be poured in because we know that lots of folks will bring it. So there's and, that. And a quick shout out there to uh, to Ben Max. If you go over to Gotham Gazette, he just had a, uh, a launch interview with Rivera where she makes uh, makes her case. And uh, keep listening here, but give that a listen once you're done. Yeah. And shout out to Ben Max, who's, you know, always with us election night. So, oh, speaking of which, hey, Ben, if you're listening, you want to come hang out with us on the evening of June 28th and August 23rd. OK, so let's shift a little north to Manhattan completely. And let's go to New York 12. You know, Harry, this is, we talked about this a teeny bit on the podcast, but um, I'm a little frustrated because Jerry Nadler and Carolyn Maloney have both served New Yorkers, you know, diligently and they they voted the way they needed to. And they've been, you know, a Democrat's Democrat when, they, when they're supposed to and represented their districts just fine. Now that the district is being reconfigured, 
it does seem like a perfect opportunity for them to pass the baton. Suraj Patel has run before. He he lost in a primary, came pretty close, but I just feel like even though Nadler and Maloney have done a great job, I don't necessarily think that for this particular moment, we necessarily need someone in a solidly democratic district. This isn't a swing district by any stretch of the imagination, but it would be a great opportunity for them to come together and figure out what's best for their new newly drawn district and support someone new. I mean, I'm a Democrat's Democrat. I try my best to you know, vote in every single election. I was in Nadler's district for many years. I, you know, my job at Fordham University in Midtown is is in Nadler's district, um, the former district. But I just feel like there's such an opportunity for new blood to come into the Democratic Party. When you think about someone like Nancy Pelosi or Maxine Waters or Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders or Chuck Schumer, the list goes on and on. And it's septuagenarians and octogenarians. And so what is our future planning in the party if we've got, you know, solid septuagenarians who've done a great job? I'm not taking anything away from Nadler and Maloney, but they really do have an opportunity in a pretty solid, solidly democratic district to pass on the torch, to mentor someone who's in the district. Um, I mean, hell, put in someone they want. Like, you know, like, I don't even care if they, like, prop up someone that they want. You know, like, you know, obviously there are whispers of, like, you know, is he getting it ready for Scotty? All that jazz. But I just, I'm so frustrated because what is our vision and our plan as a larger party in Washington, D.C.? But here in NYC, conversely, Jerry Nadler chairs the Judiciary Committee in Washington. Carolyn Maloney chairs the Oversight and Reform Committee. Those positions have a ton of juice. And we have a screwy system where the only way you get that juice is by being extremely old. I thought you were going to say squeezed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, here's the thing. I, I think that's always been not necessarily the excuse, but that is what Democrats have always told us when they refuse to step aside and pass the baton. It's saying, well, I can't leave because in Washington, D.C., I've got so much seniority. You all don't want to go to the back of the line. You don't want to be at the bottom of the queue. So let me stay here time and time again and have basically an uncompetitive, a non-competitive election because I need to keep my my senior seat. But like, guess what? Nadler or Maloney, one of them's going home to spend time with their grandkids, presumably. So we're going to lose, you know, that New York seniority on that particular committee. So... I just feel like that is a very valid point, but we keep using that point to make sure that young blood doesn't get into the line. And as someone who's trying to inspire young people to run for office, to be involved in politics and electoral politics, when they see people like Nadler and Maloney who refuse to mentor them or step aside or you know allow new ideas to come into the fold, then it's just like, well, why would I be interested in politics if these people are going to literally be wheeled out of the office in the final hour before anyone else can get a shot? Patel is also a progressive, though, and in Manhattan, there that's it's straight that district straight blue, but it's different shade of blue. It ain't a progressive it's a, blue. It's, a, it's <laughs> not progressive blue, and especially over the last few years, that 
demographic has grown increasingly afraid of like progressive policy, um, rightly or wrongly. It's just, it just happened. And Patel, you know, so. And I don't even think that Patel is necessarily the one to represent that district. I mean, we're talking about the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side, where it's like, you know, as I always say, there are different shades of blue in the Democratic Party. And this is on the, the shade that looks a little bit purple. So this is the point where we would have a competitive election, where it's not presumed that it's between Nadler and Maloney. I would like someone who does have some interesting ideas that are, you know, that's not super, super far left, but could could think about and really compete to articulate a vision for this newly complex district. I mean, keep in mind, this is still the district where, you know, parents don't want their kids going to kindergarten with, you know, black and Latino kids who are in the projects. Like we get that this isn't a progressive district. Like we've seen it time and time again. So then let's have a competitive election and like duke it out as opposed to this assumption that it's just between Nadler and Maloney and maybe a teeny bit of Patel here and there. But like, you know, I really wish that folks would step in and run for this and really make it a competitive race. I think it's just very difficult because I know that Maloney and Nadler both have war chests. They both have name recognition and they both have a lot of people who are invested in seeing them go back to Washington, D.C. to make sure that they can get their their projects and policies fulfilled. Everyone, everyone who wants a uh, an easy open space is running in the uh, 10th. It's that uh, Winter Cohen song. One of us cannot be wrong. Uh, but most of them are going to be. It gives you a sense of how rare it is to have a truly open and competitive district, even just within a Democratic primary. And the Democrat, whoever wins the primary, will will prevail there. Uh, when you see all of these candidates, uh, including you know some from outside, well outside of the district, <laughs> flooding in, I mean, borderline Connecticut. <laughs> I mean, this. Well, who's I think Connecticut? This Monday Jones is coming from Westchester, and I'm like, uh, you know. My genuine question to Harry the other day was like, is he going to campaign in the district? I mean, that's a lot. That's a, a huge commute if you're doing that every day. I mean, you're schlepping, you know, over it's an hour hunch. to get down here. So, I mean, here's the thing. So on the one hand, I feel like I'm I'm being somewhat of a hypocrite, right? So on the one hand, I'm saying, let's have a really competitive race. Like, where it's like people come in and we see the diversity of ideas. That's the 10th. But then... Then it turns into kitchen sink. We've got former congresswoman. We've got a former mayor. We've got sitting Albany folks. We've got sitting council members. But I will say the folks in the 10th who choose to vote on August 23rd, and we'll see how many actually choose to vote, but they will have enough forums and enough ways to see what the candidates want to do with their district. Unlike my concerns for the 12th, where I'm afraid that, you know, places like the Times will essentially just frame it as it's Nadler versus Maloney and Asterisk Patel and not really have a space um, for other, you know, ideas and visions. And it's just, uh, you know, the presumption that um, it's going to be Nadler or Maloney and that's it. Got to say that, that this redistricting year, it is frustrating. At the same time, having Nadler in particular, who has not run a competitive race in decades, mm -hmm. uh, and Maloney have to really, really run, and uh, with Patel there as well, is is it, it's a little something uh, in, in getting us in the right direction toward com competitive elections. Um, 
Shifting gears for just a minute, we had a sixth death already this year at Rikers, well ahead of the uh, 2021 pace, which was already well ahead of that from pre-pandemic years. Even as the uh, total population keeps going down, more people keep dying. Earlier this week, 20-year-old Emmanuel Sullivan was being held on a second-degree murder charge and a first-degree robbery charge was found dead there. We don't have much reporting yet on what happened, Uh, but this comes just after uh, a judge decided that he's not going to impose a federal receiver for now, and the city will have more time to try and turn things around. So we've had a number of episodes about this, and uh, I I suspect we're going to have more coming. But in a lot of ways, this is the backdrop to all of these other questions and whether or not you can have more or more effective uh, policing. Like we don't have a, uh, a vaguely decent place to put the people who are getting locked up now, let alone to start adding to how many people are there. It seems like a fundamental mess for Eric Adams, who's been very determined to maintain control of the city jail system and not give that up to the feds. He says, if it starts there, what's next? Are they coming for the schools? Mm-hmm. So on. Well, I think that's a legit question as a mayor, right? I mean, this has always been my my frustration, I think, with this administration, the past administration. There are oftentimes things that de Blasio and Eric Adams have done and continue to do that I disagree with as a citizen and a voter. However, if I was the mayor, I'd be doing the same thing. So no, I wouldn't want federal control of the jail system because that's power away from me and I'm the mayor, right? I'm the decider. I do think that, you know, we have to address something because we can't have death number six and it's not even, you know, at the time it wasn't even June. We know that these problems didn't start with Eric Adams. However, he was elected on a promise that he would figure them out or begin to figure them out. We still don't know fully how the closing of Rikers, if that'll ever happen, what it'll look like, what community jails will look like. I I just feel like the only time Rikers is gonna be shut down is when the real estate folks are like, we want the land and they figure out a way to (laughs) finance a mayoral campaign and make it such. I think that's the only way that Rikers will close is if the real estate industry decides that that's prime real estate and they can figure out a fairy situation and make it convenient for folks to get there and spend money. That being said, we still have families and communities who keep losing loved ones. And as a reminder to our listeners, the vast majority of people who are in Rikers have not yet been prosecuted for a crime. So they're sitting there waiting for their day in court. And so this is a miscarriage of justice on the highest level. And as New Yorkers, I think that we should be a lot more outraged. But obviously, Eric Adams isn't going to you know, ring the alarm because it's still on his watch that this, this inaction is occurring. I think also, unfortunately, even the what the charges that the person is facing um, will damn them in public opinion. And, you know, people are like, well, if he's facing, you know, if it's robbery and if it's second degree murder, like why, you know, why, why are we, why do I put my heart in this? Go and, past uh, the charges. Like, let's say, let's say that, that he, he murdered someone and it was totally unnecessary and bad. And we're agreeing to all that. And he's going to be found guilty and sentenced to 30 years in prison or whatever. Like people just shouldn't be dying unnecessarily 
on the government's watch again and again and again and again. It doesn't matter if they're the right people or the wrong people. No, of like, course, like but the most about- basic level of, of, of competence and human decency is if we're agreeing not to, to kill people or to kill this particular person, the state can kill other people. You, you just can't have people constantly uh, uh, dying on your watch uh, of killing themselves, uh, overdosing, choking to death with no medical response. It's just one moral disaster after after another. It's, it's Especially since a lot of those people were, you know, uh, per- they were just there on parole violations. But yeah. in but when you're talking to a bunch of New Yorkers. Um, and you're talking to them through tabloids, which are some of the places where the, the, the all of this reporting is the only place it shows up is in the tabloids. You know, think about some of the post readers, you know, and, and, and the law and order contingent of New York's constituency and the New York's, you know, uh, inhabitants. They're going to be like, well, he was in jail. She he was in jail. And um, unfortunately, it doesn't become a priority for voters because of that stigma. I think we can, you know, I say this all the time, but it's like, we can see a lot about our society by the way we treat incarcerated people and children. And obviously we're failing on both ends. But I think, you know, to Harry's point, it's like, okay, so what if we are talking about murderers? I know a lot of people are just like, oh, well, you know, one less murderer on the street. But I think that there's a humanity conversation that we're just not having when it comes to Rikers, because these inhumane conditions, whether people are innocent or guilty, it's still, as a as a democratic republic, we cannot incarcerate people and essentially sentence them to possible death from the conditions and whatever else is going on in Rikers. And so I do think that whether it's federal oversight or federal investigation, I'm curious to know if other cities like Chicago or Baltimore, New Orleans, Los Angeles, Philly, if they have these rates of deaths that we we do in New York, because I think part of the problem is so many New Yorkers view folks at Rikers as undesirable, but we know that the vast majority who, of people who were there, it's like they're there because of poverty and crimes of poverty and circumstances where it's like, you know, it's not about drugs. Listen. I went to private school. I teach at private school. You want drugs? I can show you where drugs are. It's called dorms. So it's not about all the things that we say it's about when we go into these communities and arrest people. So I just think that there, there's no real outrage, I think, from elected officials and the mayor specifically, which will move the needle anytime soon, from people who will never be able to see their families or be in their communities again. One of the things that really made me very jaded about New York is this very thing. I mean, there was some federal oversight. There was a justice report came out 2014, 2015 uh, about not only the crisis of violence, but the rape crisis. And that caused a bit of outrage and it caused, I think it probably was the impetus for the beginning of the close Rikers conversation. And now because of policy pandemic, I mean, you know, we could go down a rabbit hole with this. Uh, I'm sure you guys are going to do several episodes, but um And now we have, we're back in the same place again. And it's really disheartening as now a 40 year old to have seen this generational cycle happen and to have hope for something like getting better. And then just to watch it slide back because of inefficiency, like policy, uh, campaigning, politicking, um, and a a million other factors. Uh, It's, it's very dispiriting the extent to which on 
jails, mental illness, uh, pedagogy, gentrification, racism, issue after issue. They, they we're repeating conversations from the uh, mid-1960s, and you can sort of figure out how far they're going to cycle one way and then how far they're going to go back the other is uh, really distressing. And obviously this happening in New York also has a fair amount to do with having a uh, useless federal government where lawmakers haven't been able to pass laws or accomplish anything sensible and sweeping in decades now. So on things that you know you, you need to, to, to go at periodically, um, immigration reform, uh, real tax reform, uh, where you have to, 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 to clean up and adjust to new circumstances uh, gun control um, or, or whatever the, the term of art is now, you know, sensible gun laws, uh, you know, they, they've just given up. And then mayors and executives and local lawmakers are, are left to like figure out what they can do to, to deal with this in the absence of like a functional and uh, coherent uh, federal system and, and, and set of rules uh, or laws, you know, being in New York, I spend a lot of time being mad at Democrats uh so this almost goes back to what you're saying about 12 chrissy uh um you know there, there's things that if you're looking at the national picture they very much register one way like we just have to elect democrats in all of these districts uh, uh republicans nationally and in new york are uh, are poisonous uh you know uh, racist zealots and it's appalling but within the the often all democratic action in New York, where a lot of offices are really decided in primaries, the, the, the level of uh, incompetence and uh, crass ideology, like slogans that don't translate into, uh, into improvements and endless crises. You have a housing crisis, a mental illness crisis, a jails crisis, a, a policing crisis, a justice crisis that just go on and on and on for decade after decade after decade. Nothing gets done. Uh, in the meantime, you know, the, the, these lawmakers try to draw their own maps to, to benefit themselves. They try to make sure that the cities and the mayors have to come up and pay tribute. And, and you feel how self-serving the system is. And, of course, all this is epitomized, going back to CD10, uh, by, by one Bill fucking de Blasio, who is going around now collecting his petitions with his police escort he still has while he's staying at his nice hotel downtown while his homes are being renovated while he owes over half a million dollars to the lawyers who got him off the legal hook uh, from his uh, various campaign shenanigans and is frantically trying to get himself into, into an office. And let's be honest, being like a junior member of Congress, you have real things you can do for your constituents. But in a lot of ways, unlike an executive, you're, you're just going along for the ride. And in going along for that ride, you have a staff. Uh, you have you have people who, who uh, accommodate you. And people get very used to that life and that income, and especially ones like Bill, who's not a lawyer. Uh, who doesn't really want to teach or do anything else. It, it's like, it's, it's this or nothing as far as he's concerned. And you, you get how inside the democratic party and in politics more generally, this just becomes a, a, a protection racket for the people who are in on this good deal. The same way that like excellent uh, uh, housing subsidies become like an absolutely crazy lottery where people don't want to leave. And you have this in NYCHA where, 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 you know, you have families that grow up in an apartment and that's great. And then there's one person left and they, they don't want to leave. And, 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 and then there's so much less space for everyone else that, that you have systems that are hugely beneficial for the people who, who get these benefits 
but never resolve the the underlying crises. And th- I'm sorry, that's a mouthful, but that that's my big lament being here and, and looking at this set of Democrats. Yeah, I think what it boils down to, Harry, and what I think I hear you saying is that like people like Bill De Blasio and you know Nadler and Maloney and a lot of other folks are almost like raised in captivity, like I've always said about Cuomo, where she's like, so if you're not an elected official, what are you doing? And you don't know your identity without being an elected official, but that doesn't necessarily mean you need to be an elected official. Meditate and figure it out. But like that doesn't, just because you wanna do it doesn't mean you should do it. Um, and it's interesting because I am not turning my back on the the possibility of a Bill de Blasio. Like, you know, a lot of folks like, he's dead in the water. I'm like, is he though? Because name recognition alone. I mean, don't forget Park Slope is in this district. All he has to do is roll up to a lot of those families. It's like, hey, guess what? You were able to stay in this district because of universal pre-K. Like that means something to a lot of people. He's petitioning outside of UP- UPK sites, which is very Remi- smart. Reminding everyone, you mm-hmm. know, and I've talked to lots of people who have school-aged kids who, you know, were able to stay in the city. Nice middle-class folks. Maybe they have school loans. Maybe they don't. Maybe they have parents who have helped them out. Maybe they don't. But they've been very clear that it is because of universal pre-K and then 3K that have allowed them to stay in the city in ways where they would have moved out either to the burbs or to a whole different city because New York was just ridiculously expensive. I mean, we know that outside is just beyond expensive. So I, I don't think that de Blasio is dead in the water, but I do want to ask myself, it's like, well, you know, when you look around, it's like, do you think you're the best person to go to Washington, D.C.? Because last I checked, of the eight years you were mayor, six of those years, you seem wholly disinterested in working, sir, especially on behalf of New Yorkers. And if I'm, you know, that might be a little harsh, but definitely the last four years. So why is it that we're going to essentially help you get into a seat where you can kind of just relatively coast reelection wise, do enough but then what are you really doing? You're going to vote the way you're supposed to vote. Fine. And that's the DC piece. But like, what are you going to bring home for New Yorkers? Because last we checked, you were in Iowa and New Hampshire and, and doing the most and the least simultaneously. Another thing he has going for him is the rent regulated uh, voters, uh, the mm-hmm. rent regulated tenants of New York city, because, you know, he had the rent freeze. That was mm-hmm. another good thing that he did. And right now you have the, a rent regulation board that is not super favorable mm-hmm. to any kind of 0% or rent freeze. We're talking about what, four to 8%, depending on a one or two year lease. So those people vote, those people mm-hmm. vote more than anyone else I know. And they're motivated um, to vote. Well, and, yeah. and that's the crazy thing. It's like when de Blasio worked, he actually worked. He brought great things to the city, I would argue, but we had a little bit of, you know, a motivation problem. Now, listen, I'm a firm believer in naps. People always talked about de Blasio taking naps. I am of the nap ministry. I take a nap every day. Um, And I know that there's some questions about, you know, corruption and sort of some of the characters that he interacted with, which, you know, now that we've got Eric Adams, it makes de Blasio seem like, you know, small potatoes. However... I do think that there's enough on his docket to entice voters to think of him as a a serious candidate. I'm just concerned, and no, it's not my district, but I am concerned when he had an opportunity to work on behalf of New Yorkers for a very large percentage of that time, he seemed a little disinterested in doing so. It's a bunch of the same characters, you know, which is, which is sort of hilarious. We're still in the, uh, the Blasian extended universe. 
And in this model, you know, Eric Adams' pals are uh, are the uh, better call Saul, I guess, to uh, <laughs> Bill de Blasio's Breaking Bad. I would also remind voters that he did campaign on no clo- like no hospital closures, and now we are in a mental health crisis, basically because of hospital closures, primarily because of hospital closures. Indeed. All right. There, there is a ton that we're not going to get to this week. Uh, a couple things to just very quickly mention. Um, first off, we, we had the, uh, the death of the Harlem 145 complex, which was a big development there with residential towers. It's going to have a new headquarters for our Reverend Al Sharpton's National Action Network. Um, a bunch of affordable housing, the council member there, uh, Kristen Richardson Jordan, it's like, this isn't nearly enough affordable housing. It's mostly studios and one bedrooms, and the units are not affordable enough and has uh, killed the project, appearing to restore a council tradition that had been flagging in which the local member effectively gets veto power over anything that needs zoning inside of their district. In the meantime, Eric Adams spoke this morning, Wednesday morning, at ABNY, the Association for a Better New York, and he gave a yes New York vision, like real Gimby stuff about needing bigger and more. I think there's actually a fair amount to that, and that there's no way to get out of this this affordability crisis without building a lot more. Um, but we will see. Uh, there were more bad train incidents. We talked a bit about that just before recording. We'll come back to it. A woman who was uh, picked up and dragged around by her hair while people filmed and nobody helped. Another very ambiguous incident with uh, a guy holding another guy and then people coming up and roughing up that guy. The person who filmed it said the guy who was getting held, who was Asian, um, had been uh, bothering or molesting women on the train. Um, the guy who's holding him seems upset, who's black, with the guys who are hitting him, who also appear to be black. So this was initially circulating as some sort of racially charged incident. Again, the guy who was filming it said it was something else altogether. There's also there a ton of ambiguity about when the police showed up. They say they responded right away. But in the video, there's just a guy holding a guy. And this is going on for a while. And by some accounts, they weren't there for 30 minutes while the guy who's being held is trying to get away which may explain some of the uh, the violence here. And it's a reminder to be real careful about taking little clips of things and assuming uh, too much about them. That's what I got. Uh, Chrissy, Alex, any, any last words for this week? Um, you know, looking forward. I'm, I mean, I'm just looking forward to digging into a lot of this stuff that I know so intimately about New York city um, and seeing what's going on with other cities while, you know, shedding a tear for for mine from afar occasionally. I, I love the idea of getting perspective on New York by figuring out how these things actually work in other cities. Like, how does Barcelona deal with homeless encampments? Right. Uh, 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 how much does it cost to get trains dug there? What are they doing about uh, about about providing real services to the mentally ill and on and on? I just think there's a lot of perspective. And when you're in New York. As we all know, you get locked in like this is the whole universe. 
And, and, and it's fascinating to figure out some of our intractable problems that other cities are actually solving them or making them worse or, uh, or otherwise affecting them. That's awesome. Well, I just want to say, um, A, happy Pride Month um, and looking forward to all the great celebrations that New York always has throughout the five boroughs. And then congratulations to Harry Siegel and Yay. FAQ um, for our big move, packing suitcases and such. Um, but I'm really excited for this new adventure for all of us, um, Alex, and our international correspondents. And Harry, just obviously, you know, you're one of my favorite New Yorkers uh, and you're journalistic integrity is is bar none so i'm excited for this next chapter go us um, <laughs> f-a-q f-a-q.nyc is a production of racket media and a proud member of the brickhouse cooperative of independent journalists artists and critics find us online at thebrick.house we're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and came to you this week from all across New York City. Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be cool and be kind, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> I'm Adam. <laughs> <laughs>